0: Good morning, church family. It is always such an honor to open God's Word with you, Um, a congregation as hungry for God's Word as you all are. It's just a joy uh, to preach, uh, to dig in together, Um, and we love you guys. Uh, Just want you to know that we. um, I think many of you know we'll be moving uh, in July. Uh, The Air Force is sending us to New Mexico so we'll be headed that way soon. Uh, we're going to miss you guys. We love you so much. It's been such a, you've, you've just been so important to our family. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you one quick little example. Joel's been gone for training. He's here with us right now, but he was at basic and then at uh, tech school, and his frustration was the chaplains all preached so short, and he was really looking forward to getting back and hearing Hobson preach. And uh, so he he was glad Hobson preached last week because that's, the one time he got to hear him, um, he had to listen to me, who he's listened to his whole life. Uh, the other days, but anyway, uh, yeah, we love you guys, Hobson. We've so benefited from your ministry, uh, from your preaching, and church family. Just your your openness, your vulnerability. When we go to fellowship groups and people share, um, just share their heart, open up, share prayer requests. It's just such an amazing thing uh, to just live life together and to see a church that truly. Uh, desires to minister to one another, uh, to live out the gospel together, and uh, we're we're going to miss you dearly. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 6. We're looking at uh, verses 19 through 24. I'll uh, we'll go ahead and read those. We had them read earlier. I'll read them again uh, just to kind of get ourselves focused here, and then we'll have prayer, and we'll jump in. And I know we're having trouble with the mic. Do I need to do anything? Are you guys, nope? Okay, we'll just live with it till they get that sorted out. All right, uh, look with me here, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If in the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you for this admonition. Uh, Lord, you show us that there's only two ways to live. Pursuit of comfort, pursuit of self, or pursuit of you. Uh, So, Lord, give us hearts, give us hungry hearts this morning, Lord, that we would want to understand what it means when you call us to pursue Christ with a whole heart. Uh, God, I pray that we would be open and vulnerable before you as we take inventory of uh, the blessings you've given to us as we consider what it means to use those things in service of you. Lord, I pray that we would look to Christ as our ultimate example of what it means to serve and give and live out our lives before you. God, help us today. We thank you for all you're going to do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's been said a thousand times, there are two kinds of people in this world. And each time the statement is completely different. Right? There's two types of people in the world. There's morning people and those who want to shoot morning people. (laughs) I'm a morning person. My wife is not. (laughs) There are two types of people in the world. Or I'm sorry, there are two types of people in every hospital. Those who are desperately ill and those who complain about the food. (laughs) There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who can extract from incomplete data. There are two kinds of people in the world. uh, Those who believe there are two kinds of people in the world and those who don't. And my personal favorite, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who play hopscotch and sing in the shower and those that lie alone at night with tears in their eyes. I don't really know what that means. It just struck me as important for some reason. Uh, The subtitle of today's sermon is, Why There Are Only Two Ways to Live. Now, whether or not you believe there are only two kinds of people, and however you might categorize those two types of people, Jesus makes it plain for us here in this text. There are, in fact, only two ways for all of these people to live. We can live for self, or we can live for God. We can live for God, or we can live for God's stuff. And I'm guessing we all wrestle with that dichotomy regularly. As we take inventory of our lives, we take inventory of how we use our things, we look at God and the demands of scripture and what it means to pursue him, and we wrestle with how am I stewarding the gifts that he's given to me. In 2007, I was a part-time interim pastor of a very small church, and I worked full-time at an auto parts warehouse. Uh, Now, we had regular mandatory overtime, uh, 45, 50 hours a week, and I just didn't have the time to invest in the church. And so I talked to my supervisor about it, and he recommended that we change my status to part-time. He could still give me 40 hours a week, uh, but they couldn't require me to work beyond that. Made sense. So we made the change. In 2007, we did not anticipate what 2008 would bring. This microphone is going to fall off of my head. You know, when I was a kid, my family used to make fun of me for my ears because they stick out. And I, the, the shorter my hair is, the more pronounced that is. And uh, I don't care so much except when I have to wear one of these microphones. I think it's there. So sorry. It's such a nuisance. And it distracts me and it probably distracts you, especially when I stop and talk about it. Uh, <laughs> but in 2007, we did not know, we did not anticipate the recession of 2008. And when it hit, I was stuck in a part-time status Our company was impacted, as many other companies were, and then my hours, normally 40 hours, were cut to 20, and they could not give me more. And I talked to my supervisor, I talked to the warehouse manager, who was a godly man, and he felt compassion, but there was nothing he could do. And so here I was, a mortgage, three children, 20 hours a week. The church had been paying me out of their savings, which was depleted, and we were stuck. No one was hiring, and it was hard. I found out later that Rebecca was regularly skipping meals to help stretch the food. But God was faithful. It was a hard season. In those days, passages like this one leapt from the page and were so alive with meaning. They were so easy to understand and easy to apply. Do not store up treasures on earth. Well, that's easy. If you can't buy stuff, you can't hoard stuff, right? But rather store up treasures in heaven. When there's no conceivable means of storing up earthly treasure, the value of heavenly treasure shines clear and bright. My service to the church, my daily devotions, being a witness at work, it had this almost tangible quality because it was so plain to see these things mattered and had eternal value. So when the temporal is out of reach, the eternal is within grasp. Those years were formative in helping me learn more about what it meant to live for Jesus. If you're not a Christian and you hear us talking about following Jesus or living for Jesus or being like Jesus, you may have certain ideas about a certain brand of morality. Or you may think of things that you, you assume and you've heard people talk about certain things that Christians aren't supposed to do, like drink or cuss or watch Breaking Bad or whatever the big show is at the time. right? Um, if you grew up in a mainline denomination... Following Jesus for you may have meant acts of mercy, like volunteering at soup kitchens or pet shelters or something like that. If you grew up in a more legalistic church, then you may agree with our non-Christian friend who thinks it's all about what we don't do. But what Jesus shows us in these verses here is rooted in how a Christian should live, more specifically what a Christian should pursue, and it has to do with our possessions and our values and our morals, but it's really all about our heart what do we love? What do we adore? What do we pursue? Jesus employs three metaphors from everyday life, and he challenges us to evaluate our priorities in light of them. Of these metaphors, then we will ask three questions. Question number one is this, do I treasure heavenly things or earthly things? Look at verse 19 again. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So the first metaphor Jesus presents is treasure. By definition, a treasure is something that is stored up. So he's not talking about your, your regular income or your day-to-day necessities in order to survive, right? He's already taught us that we should pray that God would give us our daily bread. What Jesus is talking about here is excess. There's a parallel passage. Um, turn with me to, to Luke not chapter 12 and keep your finger in Luke 12. We'll be back there a couple times. But Luke chapter 12, he's addressing the same teaching of Jesus and he says that in the, just before he gets to this specific text, he gives us a parable. Look at chapter, or verse 16. Luke 12, verse 16. And he told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, there's nothing wrong with income or success. Jesus does not condemn this man for being wealthy, but for hoarding his wealth and trusting in it rather than having a relationship with God. This is a matter of the heart. And I'm going to give you from our text three reasons why I believe this is a matter of the heart. It's not about how much you make. It's not even really about how much you have. It's about your heart. And here's three reasons why. Number one, Jesus does not want us to waste our lives on things that don't matter. This is a compassionate teaching of Christ. Look with me again at verse 19. I'm sorry, give me just a second. This thing is, I thought I had this all set up today. Work All right, verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Of the three metaphors in this text, this is the only one that includes a command. Now, I used to read this passage as if these verses, 19 through 21, was kind of the theme, and the next two metaphors were kind of explaining that theme. Uh, But I believe that they're all three are parallel, and I'll show you why here in a moment. But I think he starts with the command to drive home the importance of what matters. And what matters is this, where is my treasure located? The command is twofold. The first states the command negatively. He says, do not And the reason he explains it for us, do not, because nothing here lasts. Right? Everything you own will be destroyed by something. Right? Moths. We don't wear as much wool as we used to in in our country, but moths would eat your clothes and leave holes in them. I remember my grandparents' closet always smelled like mothballs because they had a lot of wool, right? So moths destroy, rust destroys. Um, yesterday, Ethan did his project out there on the playground. Um, you guys may have seen the fence has been moved, and when we pulled up that old chain link, the bottom of it was all rusty. I don't know how long it's been there, but rust destroys, right? It, it decays. It, it destroys things. Uh, where thieves break in and steal. In those days, uh, houses were made of clay, and the the text literally reads, "Where thieves dig in and steal," because they would dig through the walls of your house. So even if you could lock your door. Thieves could still dig in and steal your stuff. And he says, nothing here lasts. Today, we could add war, famine, pandemic, denied insurance claims, hurricanes, frozen pipes, blown piston, failed hard drive, recession, taxes, on and on we could go with things that destroy our earthly treasure. D.A. Carson said, the means by which treasure is lost is unimportant, but in our day certainly includes galloping inflation. He wrote that in 1978. And here we are again. I read this at work last week, and I shared it with a colleague. And I said, you know, if you leave a book on your shelf long enough, it becomes current again. And he said, you know, that's why I never get rid of a shirt. And some of you are looking stylish today, because you've been playing the long game for decades. So great, great job. But by nature, we want to accumulate things or pursue things that in light of eternity have no inherent value. Jesus wants something better for us. So he's saying, don't do that. And he says it as a command. And the reason is because we're stubborn. Have you ever dressed a two-year-old that doesn't want to put on the footed pajamas? Right? And you've got these stiff arms and these kicking legs, and you got to wrestle the kid in because you know it's going to be chilly and you want what's good for the child. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, You're stubborn, you're squirmy, you're going all over the place pursuing these things. Stop it. Don't pursue those things, they will not last. They will not bring you joy. And then he flips it and gives us the positive command but rather, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And what happens there? There's no rust, there's no moths. Or if they are, they're glorified and eat something other than your clothes, right? And there's no thief. Jesus delights in giving us good gifts. And he says, invest here because this stuff will last forever. Look back at Luke's parallel passage, chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock. If you ever wonder what Jesus' heart attitude is towards you, look for things like that. How endearing, how warm is that? Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that will not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus delights in giving us good gifts. That's the second reason why I believe this is a heart issue, is because he wants to give us good things. And thirdly, I believe this is a heart issue because Jesus says so much in verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It starts with the word for, or your translation may say because. In other words, what he's saying is since your heart follows your treasure, put your treasure in heaven so you spend your life doing heaven's work. He's not trying to adjust your income, but your passions. He's asking, what do you love? This is also the reason I believe each of these metaphors are parallel in this text. is because they each end with a punchy statement that makes his point clear. I think that's what he's doing with each of these. He's giving us three statements that all address the heart. And that's the point of this. It's not the command that begins it. The command is merely setting us up to hear the punchline, which is where your treasure is. That's where your heart is and he wants your heart. He's more concerned about your heart than what's in your bank account or what comes into it every month. The reason he's saying, the reason I want you investing in heaven is so that your heart will belong to heaven. So how do we do that? How do we do that? It's a tough question, right? We Okay, I get the concept. I get what he's saying, but how day-to-day, how do I actually do this? How do I invest in heaven? In our context, we need to consider what came before Right? Teaching on fasting, just before that, teaching on prayer. So certainly the spiritual disciplines are a way of investing in heaven. But I think we also need to think more about what Jesus taught us about heaven. Look back with me just before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Matthew 4, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, of course, repentance, right? We've got to have our hearts right. We confess our sin. We trust in Christ, right? We repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then he goes on, get down to verse 23. As Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, right? This is the kingdom of heaven, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, so that his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to Decapolis, from Jerusalem to Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Chapter 5, verse 1, "...seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them." And then we get into the whole sermon on the mount. So when Jesus came doing the works of the kingdom of heaven... He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. He was preaching the gospel. He was doing all these things as an agent of heaven. Heaven is a real place, and it is the eternal destiny of Christ's followers, but heaven is also a kingdom, and the agenda of that kingdom is at work around us and through God's people. And if we read this uh, this text, if we read this command to store up treasure in heaven and we think only about our eternal retirement, then we're going to be doing things that look like eternal retirement. We're going to pray. We're going to be holy. We're going to stay home and not go out where the bad people are. If we're doing the work of the kingdom of heaven, we're going to go out where the people are and we're going to bring them the gospel. We're going to bring them the hands and feet and the mouth of Jesus. You see the difference there. We need to not only think of heaven and eternity, but the kingdom of heaven here and now working through us. The conservative and before and reformed... We, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Hold on. Um, yeah, one of my professors, scholar and pastor Dan Doriani, he said, we should do extensively what Jesus did intensively. In other words, Jesus healed the sick, so we should build hospitals. Jesus raised the dead, so we should preach the gospel. That's what our Sunday school class is all about, what Sterling and, and Jason have been walking us through is, is how we take the truth of the gospel and apply that to real-life relationships, right? And we bring the power of the gospel, the power to change into those things. Jesus made the lame walk, allowing them to go back to work, so we should do what we can to make sure the lame are cared for, right? Whatever those things are, wherever we can bump up against evil and the effects of evil, we should bring the truth and the work of Jesus into those places. So from my background, the conservative and reformed wings of Christendom have often made this passage all about our checkbook. And by doing so, I think we've surrendered much of our call uh, to these works of ministry, these works of mercy to the Catholics and the liberals. We've let them run the soup kitchens and the hospitals, and us Bible believers, we've kind of given up on that. To just merely be holy, pray, and be good, right? Does that make sense? You following me? Okay. How we spend our money matters, but that's a small piece of what Jesus means when he says store up treasure in heaven. What he means is do the work of the kingdom of heaven the way I modeled it for you. And when you do that, it will capture your heart. And that was his plan all along. That's the purpose here. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. I'm going to give you just a, a couple examples from the early church. Philemon was a wealthy Christian who had a church meeting in his home. Right? Archaeology has shown us that many wealthy Christians significantly remodeled their homes to accommodate large gatherings. They have found these houses that normally would have a, a living room and a kitchen maybe, these different rooms together, and they'd bust out the walls to bring in lots of people. They're like, these were early house churches. Wealthy people remodeling their homes to bring in the church. That's a beautiful thing. One of the things I love about our fellowship groups is being in people's homes. So you ready to take a sledgehammer to your living room wall, get more people in there? right? No, we don't need to do that. We've we've got a good pattern. We only have, you know, what, 12 or so people in our fellowship groups. That's good. Uh, But that's one example here of what Jesus means when he says, don't store up treasure here. Your home is eventually going to erode anyway. If you have one, use it for the kingdom of heaven. In 362 A.D., the Roman emperor Julian launched a campaign to revitalize paganism. Christianity was growing and paganism was declining. But to do this, he recognized that they would have to counter Christian benevolence. What a cool thought. The emperor of the dominant kingdom on earth is saying, we've got to do something to counter the advance of Christianity. And he wrote a letter to a pagan priest And he said this, The Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. A historian named Rodney Stark commented on that. He said, But this challenge to the temples to match Krishna benevolence asked the impossible. Paganism was utterly incapable of generating the commitment needed to motivate such behavior. Not only were many of its gods and goddesses of dubious character, but they offered nothing that could motivate humans to go beyond self-interested acts of propitiation. Stark, along with many other historians, argues that this sacrificial benevolence is the single most important factor to explain the rapid growth of Christianity in the early days. They were doing extensively what Jesus did intensively. They were going out into the streets and loving people the way Jesus did. This is, the first, this is the first and second commandments together. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The second question, the second metaphor, uh, we ask this question. Do I adore the creator or the things he created? Look with me at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now in this question, I chose to use the word adore. What do you adore? If that doesn't carry the meaning for you, if you have a hard time connecting to that word, you could try esteem, admire, revere, worship, or glorify. The point is we are commanded to love God supremely. And so look at your, take inventory of your life, take inventory of your passions, your desires. Do I adore the creator or the things he created? Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. But we all know that we have innumerable things competing for that affection. Here, Jesus says, if we allow ourselves to be captivated by these things, we not only violate deuteronomy 6 5 but we weaken our entire being we become spiritually weakened as we pursue these other things so let's dig into the metaphor this one's a little bit cryptic these verses 22 and 23 he says the eye is the lamp of the body what that means is what you look at feeds your soul right what you look at it's going to come into your being it's going to bring you uh, whatever the nutrients is of that thing that you're pursuing Scripture has a lot to say about the sins of lust and covetousness, but the scope of this text I don't think is limited merely to physically looking at something. It's more of, a, more of a pursuit, more of an admiration. I remember each of these paragraphs, they're metaphors of what a lifelong pursuit of Jesus should look like. So while lusting after your neighbor's spouse or your neighbor's boat certainly fits into the warning, what he's talking about is much broader than, than the physical act of looking at something or the physical sins of the eyes. It asks the question: what feeds you? So I'm going to ask a few diagnostic questions to try to drill down into what this means. Ask yourself this. When you are down, where do you go for encouragement? What are you looking at? What are you pursuing? When you're down, where do you go for encouragement? Is it is it Netflix? Is it sleep? vacation, the journeys don't stop believing? Or or is it scripture, prayer, the counsel of a godly friend, those kinds of things? When you're down, where do you go to be lifted back up? When you're happy, how do you express your celebration? Is it reliving the glory of your accomplishment that you're happy about? Is it boasting about things that have happened? Is it drink? Is it food? Or is it things more like Prayer of thanksgiving and sharing with others what God has done for you. When you are afraid, where do you go for courage? Is it TED Talks, right on how to overcome this challenge, this obstacle in front of you? Motivational speakers? Is it your own abilities or the God who commands us to not fear and points us to our eternal hope in Christ? These are ways that we may see the eye is the lamp of the body. What are you bringing into yourself on a regular basis? Not that any of those other things I mentioned are are necessarily evil in themselves, but these things in exclusion to a Godward focus leaves us hungry. It leaves our souls malnourished, needing only what God can give. It says if your eye is healthy, right? The eye is a lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy. Now, some of your translations may say if your eye is single. And what this means is being motivated by singleness of purpose. It's having a single focus, a pure focus, where you're looking at only one thing. Think back to when you were learning to drive, right? And they'd say, you don't want to drive into the ditch, so don't look at the ditch. You don't want to drive in oncoming traffic, so don't look at the left lane. Look straight ahead. And that's what this is saying. If your eye is single, if it's focused on the right thing, you're moving in the right direction. You will be bringing health into yourself. The first century rabbis use this expression of single focus to refer to generosity. So you may have heard this text preached or taught at other times, and they emphasize being generous here. And they say if you're focused on generosity, it's going to make you healthy. And there is some truth in that. But, but I think there's another explanation that fits the context better. The other option is this. The phrase was used um, in the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the New Testament, to, to be used uh, talking about health. Right? So if your eye is healthy, that's why the ESV uses that uh, interpretation of the word, if your eye is healthy, it means wholeness. So that idea of singleness of focus also has the idea of wholeness or health. Uh, and I think that fits the context better. If we put these three metaphors together, they each express this focused pursuit of Jesus. Right? We pursue Jesus with our treasure. We pursue, pursue Jesus with our adoration And then we'll see in a moment we pursue Jesus with our service. So while generosity will be a a natural consequence of this lifestyle, I think the point Jesus is making here is is the health of, of having that single focus on him. It means this, a focused adoration of Jesus fills your whole being with light, with truth, with purity. And then he says it in the negative, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If we're constantly focused on the temporal, the tangible, the fleeting, or the fleshly, right? we're filling ourselves with darkness. And of course, things that are overtly sinful, we know those things are bad for us. But this would also include an exclusive diet of HGTV, or fishing, or lawn care. Those things that aren't bad, but at the, at the expense of being in the Word and focusing on Christ, they're only bringing temporal, useless things into our lives with no eternal value and they leave us hungry. They leave us malnourished. The point is this, verse, the last part of verse 23. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Just like the previous paragraph ended with a punchy statement, so does this one. And that's the whole point of what he's saying. If all you're bringing into yourself has no eternal value, your whole being will be dark, will be unhealthy, will be unfit for life. Jesus tells us the single focus, fixing our eyes solely on him, is what gives us life. So how do we do it? I mean, personally, I love a lot of things. So when I was working on this and I came up with this question of, do you adore God or his stuff? You know, what what do you adore? I I like a lot of things. I love backpacking with my boys. We backpacked a good portion of the southern coast of Portugal and we camped on beaches. And it was amazing. I have lifelong memories that bring me joy from that experience. We tackled or or tried to tackle the 100-mile wilderness up in Maine, and it was beautiful, and we met some amazing people. Our last day there, we met this guy who who got saved just before he started hiking the Appalachian Trail and told us his testimony. And he'd been listening to Alistair Begg and different great teachers while he's hiking up and down the trail. And he's like, I'm going to be done in a a week or so, and I don't want to stop. It's like, this is so great. So anyway, experiences like that, just awesome. I love other things. I love Five Guys Cheeseburgers. I love Qdoba Burritos. I love Mod Pizza, right? I love these things. I adore my wife. If I could live in a cabin in the woods with just her and not interact with any other people, I'd be perfectly happy with that. She needs people, right? (laughs) She needs you guys, I love you guys, but I'd be perfectly fine in that cabin for a very long time. I adore, I love a lot. And you, I mean, you know, or you get it. She's smart, beautiful, funny, sarcastic. She's godly. She's got a great, you, you, she's wonderful, right? So what does all this mean? There's a Christian musician named Todd Agnew. He asked the question in, in this song. Uh, he wrote a song called If You Wanted Me. And one line in the song is this. If you wanted me to love you only... Why did you make the moonlight sparkle in her eyes? Now, based on his other work, I think he resolved the tension in his soul. But in that song, he just leaves the question hanging there. And you wrestle with that. What does this mean? If we're to only pursue Jesus, can I adore my wife? Can I go on backpacking trips with my boys? The BX on base at Qdoba is going to open on 1 June, and I'm going to be there. Is that okay? I don't know if Joe Rigney ever listens to Todd Agnew, but he brilliantly answers the question in his book called The Things of Earth. There's a beautiful old hymn. You probably know it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. It goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And Joe Rigney says, no, that is completely wrong. He says, in the light of the radiance of Jesus' glory, the things of earth should grow strangely bright. And he wrote a whole book about it. And it's a pretty thick one, and it's great. I highly recommend it. This paragraph stood out to me. Listen carefully. What does full and supreme love for God look like when it meets one of his gifts? Glad reception and enjoyment of his gifts. Delight in Eve is what full and supreme love for God looks like when it meets Eve. Grateful enjoyment of fish tacos, which came up in our fellowship group a couple weeks ago, is what supreme love for God looks like when it eats fish tacos. Robust pleasure in church softball is what supreme love for God looks like when it plays church softball. Delight in people and love for people is what supreme love for God looks like when it meets people. This singular vision of Jesus that, that Jesus describes here, it's not some stoic avoidance of all created things, but rather it's a God centered delight in his gifts. So if you still aren't sure what that looks like in real life, I think the next paragraph will make it a little more tangible for you. All right, so we ask the third question. Do I use my resources as servants of God, or am I servants of them? Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we're going to start at the end with this one, with the the punchy statement first that says this. You cannot serve God and money. He says you can't. He doesn't say you're not going to be good at it. He just says you can't do it. Now, the ESV is my favorite translation. I love it. But this verse is my least favorite ESV verse in the whole Bible. Okay, and here's here's why. uh, Jesus is not talking about money the way we think about money. The Greek word is mammon. And there's no good English equivalent of that word. Some commentators say the word means anything of worth. Right, the most literal translation is your pile. Your pile. It means all your stuff. You took all your stuff and piled it up. That's what that means. It's your pile. Okay, It's your house, your insurance, your stock portfolio. It's your rank or position, your reputation, your network of friends, social media followers. It's your job, your family, your car, your hobbies, your talents, your education credentials, souvenirs from your favorite vacation, it's your lawn, your Christmas decorations, right? We could go on all day long. It's your pile. It's all your stuff. And Jesus says you can't serve God and your pile. It's impossible. It's impossible to serve two masters. Despise here in the text when he says to love the one or be devoted, or, uh, be devoted to the one and despise the other. Uh, despise, it simply means to love less, right? Now, there's a significant difference between... Master and employer, right? Servants who serve a master, they do not have off-duty time. Their existence is defined by their duty to their master. Now, Craig Blomberg, a New Testament scholar, he said that the um, the, the best equivalent we have to that in the modern day is the enlisted military member. That's right. The enlisted military member. And he's right, right? Your commander can call you in at any time. And limit your freedom uh, to work a second job, right? For our, for our enlisted guys, well, I'm probably officers. I've never explored it. But for, I know that to work a second job, you actually have to have permission. You've got to fill out a form, and the commander's got to sign it to allow you to work a second job. They can deny it. They can say, no, no, I want exclusive access to you. And they can enforce that. They can tell you when to come to work. They can tell you how long to stay. They can tell you when to sleep. They can tell you when to eat. You can't even quit without the military's approval. It's almost absolute authority. An employer only has authority over an employee while they're on the clock. You can serve two employers. You can't serve two militaries. Imagine somebody trying to be in the United States Army and the Canadian Air Force. That person's probably going to end up in Leavenworth, if you know where that is. But what Jesus says here, what's shocking about this passage is this. Look at this. Either he will hate the one and love the other. So, Josh, Sam, do you guys love your commander? Now, as Christians, right, as Christians, you're obligated to. But as NCOs, is that how you would describe that relationship? I'm guessing not. The camera can't see you, Sam. You don't have to say that. Okay. So in the introduction, right, I said some people define Christianity as a list of rules. Jesus defines it as love. This is distinctly Christian. You will not find any other world religion that describes our relationship with our Creator in these words. Not one. This is distinctly Christian. No other religion has a God who put on flesh, who came to this sin-cursed earth and died in your place. Right, Allah didn't do that. Buddha didn't do that. Only Jesus did that. In fact, Jesus himself illustrates this principle of service perfectly. He tells us to serve. He says you can't serve two masters. He walked that out for us. He showed us what that looks like. He came here as a servant, as the suffering servant, and lived out a life of obedience and suffering for us so we could see what that looks like. John Murray wrote in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he wrote about seeking for a single grand category under which to consider all of Jesus' redemption offices. Jesus did a lot of things. His, His sacrifice, he listed them out. His sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. And we don't have time to unpack all of those things, but those are just different Angles we could look at what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And John Murray says he wanted one category as kind of the main point in each of those listed underneath it. And I thought that that main point was going to be something super profound, right? Some really big theological word that maybe I hadn't heard before. So I kept reading. And what I came to is this the, the grand heading over all of these things is obedience. He was obedient. Obedient to the point of death. And to explain why he uses obedience, he referenced Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. I encourage you, if you have any time this afternoon, spend some time in Isaiah chapter 53. Back up just a little bit, actually, to chapter 52, verse 13, and then read through the end of chapter 53. And Murray then, after talking a little bit about Jesus as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and his obedience and his prudence, his wisdom, all the things he was going to do during his suffering, his time here on earth. He then points us to John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. And Jesus says this. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge, or this command, I have received from my Father. You see, all that Jesus has done for us, he did out of deep love for us and obedience to the Father. So we may ask then, what does this have to do with my pile? Well, first, let's understand clearly, God is not against owning things and experiencing joy. If you read through the book of Acts, you're going to read about a lot of Christians who had homes, who had jobs, who had income, who lived normal lives on a real earth. They all had their pile. It was significantly smaller than ours in 21st Western world, right? But they had stuff. And and they were never told, you shouldn't have stuff, right? What what our challenge is, is what do we do with it? If we live our lives under the same heading of Jesus which is obedience to our master, then all of these blessings of life become instruments of service for our master. If you have a home, loving obedience to your master makes your home a place of hospitality. If you have a good income, loving obedience to your master looks like generous giving. If you have a position of influence, loving obedience to your master looks like using your privilege as an opportunity to speak for the disadvantaged. If you have the right to vote, loving obedience to your master looks like exercising that right, not for your comfort, but for the flourishing of human life. The issue is not the pile. The issue is, are you on top of it, handing it out for the kingdom, or are you underneath it, frantically trying to serve it to make it bigger? So the question now is, how do I know? There are only two ways to live. How do I know if I'm living for Jesus or if I'm really just living for my pile and I'm lying to myself? It's a hard question. I don't know who's preaching next week, but I think the answer is somewhere in verse 25. Just pass that one on. But no, seriously, look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? And just goes on about Jesus' care for us. I think it's somewhere in there. So so think, think about this. Maybe the anxiety you feel about your pile is a helpful diagnostic to what you're living for, right? If the thought of losing it or any piece of it just brings panic and despair... I'd say, look back at Jesus. Look back at these challenges that he lays out for us. Look back at these statements, right? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. If the light in you is darkness, how great is this darkness that's plaguing you? And you can't serve both God and your stuff. I think the most helpful answer maybe lies in your prayer life. After spending so much time in the Lord's prayer, it seems kind of obvious to look back there. How naturally do you pray these words? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Just enough. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Right, And maybe that even has to do with your stuff. Craig Blomberg read another great book. Um, Can't think of the title off top. Oh, it's neither poverty nor riches. And it goes back to this proverb, right, where the, the author is praying, God, don't give me so little that I'm tempted to steal, but don't give me so much that I'm tempted to boast and not need you. Maybe that's lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And you can add the doxology on there if you want or not. As we saw a couple weeks ago, it's not in the Bible. So if you can honestly pray this way, ready to surrender your temporary life for the sake of the kingdom, you're probably on the right path. Now, I don't think any of us honestly are going to go, oh, yeah, that's easy. But does your heart say, God, that's what I want? That's how I want to live. That's where I want my passions to be. Take it, give it, it's in your hands. As Job said, right, I came naked, I'm leaving naked, it's all yours. Paraphrase. If portions of this prayer make you pause or deflect, or kind of change your thought process, then, then probably that's the point where you need to pursue repentance and dig deeper into your relationship with Jesus. So I think that's the best diagnostic tool. How do you pray? How's your prayer life? Is it focused on Christ and his glory, his kingdom at work here among us, or on yourself? Let me pray for us now, and we'll close.